Today on episode number 240 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Flower Darby shares about her new book, Small Teaching Online, co-authored with a familiar past guest, James Lang. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be more present for our students. Today's guest was introduced to me by AQ. Some of you who've been listening regularly might remember that the Association of College and University Educators and Teaching in Higher Ed partnered together, and we started that when we realized how many experts both organizations had featured in common. And it's just been a great partnership, and Flower is a senior instructional designer at Northern Arizona University. She's also online faculty at NAU and Estrella Mountain Community College. Flower has taught for over 22 years in a range of disciplines from English to jazz dance to educational technology to Pilates. Flower's online teaching experience spans 10 years, 75 classes, and more than 2,000 students. She loves to see students thrive through excellent teaching practice, whether that teaching takes place in person or online. Today, Flower Darby and I share a conversation about her new book, Small Teaching Online, which is co-authored with James Lang. Flower, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm so glad to have been introduced to you by AQ, and I will admit I was fascinated from the very beginning, just because you wrote a follow-up to a book that has really transformed my teaching and transformed so many professors teaching all around the world. So I know that it also had an impact on you. Could you talk about how you first got connected with James Lang and a little bit about the origins of the book that you co-wrote together? Yes, it's been a really exciting journey. It's been an honor. Small teaching, again, has made a big impact on so many faculties teaching practice. And Jim came to my university, Northern Arizona University, in January 2018 and gave his talk on small teaching. Somebody raised a hand, asked the question, how do you do this online? And Jim said, well, that's the first question that people always ask, and I don't know. I would need a co-author. That could be a good book. I thought about it for a few days, and I I said, me, pick me. I want to write that book with you because there's a need for it. And had you already read Small Teaching or was his coming to your institution the first that you had heard about this concept of the little things we can do that have a big difference in our teaching? I read it in depth prior to his talk because I was going to be hosting a table conversation. And my primary role at the university is as an instructional designer. And even apart from the workshop that day, it's really good to have in your back pocket approaches and things that I that you can discuss with faculty one-on-one when we're working together. So I the idea resonated with me immediately that because I've done it myself, go you hear about an approach and you think about implementing it and you think that's too daunting. I can't do that. So I really could see the value and the need for 
applying his approach to online teaching as well. Talk a little bit about some of the big themes that are coming out when we start talking about online learning that are real challenges for us and and how you wanted to incorporate that into the book. Well, I think the biggest challenge regarding online learning is its newness. Mm -hmm. It's brand new. It's maybe at a stretch, 20 years old, and we just don't have the experience with it, either as students or as teachers. I do think this is going to change with time and additional research, but the fact is right now, it's a new modality for both teachers and students. We don't have the experience. Many of us faculty have not been online learners. Again, I imagine that will change but we don't even know what it looks like. I was meeting with faculty this morning who who wanted a tour of an online course because she had never been in one. And you contrast that to our experience being students in physical classrooms for decades and being teachers in physical classrooms. And we bring a lot of experience. We've thought about how we want to, to teach there. We just don't have that depth of experience with online classes and neither do our students. So it's it's new ground, we're pioneering, and we're learning as we go, and there's work to be done there. You say that it's new, and I think some people might be concerned about the use of that term. You say new in contrast to what? <laughs> I mean, just, right. just frame that for us, because it's not like it just was, you know, last Tuesday or something. Talk, talk a little <laughs> bit about that distinction. Thank you. Well, I've, I've given some thought to this idea that we've taught in person for thousands of years. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we have thousands of years of experience teaching in person in different formats, in classrooms, in coaching sessions, and we know how to do that. We've thought about it. We've experimented. We've studied it. We've done a lot of work in, in neuroscience and cognitive psychology to, to learn how people learn. We That's when I say we don't have the depth of experience and the breadth with online learning. Compared to how long we've been teaching in person, online learning is in its infancy. Yeah. One of the things that we find when we start to coach faculty in in in-person classes is that they do look to the model of how they learned when they were in college. And for many of them, it came from a position of predominantly lecture being used as the method of what I would say is content delivery. And much of the actual, what I would call learning, happening outside the class. And now we've started to discover that actually we could use methods like active learning, like retrieval practice, like lots of different ways to, I want to say even cherish, but to, to really make the biggest use out of the time we have in person but so many times we don't have the models to go from. So, st- so professors will find themselves going back to what's comfortable because that kind of changes really can be uncomfortable, especially because the first time you start to try an approach, it may not go the way you expect it to go. <laughs> you may have Almost some more, <laughs> some more signs of our failures, uh, more evidence of a failure versus if we go with our norm. Where do you see that same thing happening in online classes? Where I mean, you said that some of us, most of us, wouldn't even have taken an online class, but even if we have, where do you see the disconnects happening there for us wanting to have something to emulate, but but maybe we don't have something to to do that with? Well. Many students and faculty have less than ideal online experiences. In fact, a recent report came out from the Educause Center on Action Research, ECAR, and they found that 9% 
of the 13,000 faculty respondents said that they prefer to teach online. That indicates to me that 91% would rather teach anywhere else. And so my thinking here is that when we have experienced an online class as a student, or maybe we've observed another online teacher to help us get ready, or maybe very commonly we're given content the first time we're going to teach something, we use somebody else's content. Well, usually I'm going to make the argument that those are less than ideal. They're not necessarily exemplary approaches. And I'm going to chalk that up again to how little time we've had to study um, how to do online learning well. But oftentimes we've seen poor examples and we think that's how it's done. And we continue in that vein. And that's regrettable. Where do you see the most common challenge or a most common challenge of emulating something that should not have been looked at as a model? <laughs> in my experience, I still see many online courses that resemble electronic correspondence courses more than a highly engaging interactive online learning experience. So posting some readings, maybe a few videos, or even less effective, just the PowerPoint slides without any narration or talking through them, and then requiring a quiz and maybe some discussion. We can go a lot further than that, but that is a very common example of what people might be exposed to first. And they, they literally can't conceive of doing anything else. They've, they don't have decades of experience going into different online classrooms and experiencing different teachers' approaches. Um, so they see one way, and it's the only way they've seen, and those are the, the patterns that they might fall into. One of the things that I notice, and this is an anecdotal observation, is that some faculty will really want to hold themselves back. One example would be, you know, I don't, I don't want to ever be on the video. And, you know, there's lots of reasons why someone might not want to be on a video, but, and I, I don't want to second guess that, yet at the same time, I oftentimes it comes from a sense of, well, I don't want to put myself out there like that, or I, you know, that, that would make me uncomfortable. And I think, well, the class that you are teaching, if you are actually teaching and learning is happening, learning can be uncomfortable. So sometimes if we can open ourselves up a little bit to allow more of a sense of that presence. And one thing I do want to say, just that, that you mentioned how little research has been done, but I did hear at a conference, a guy had done some look at whether the learning was different on a screencast if the professor's mm. face was showing on the video and if it wasn't, learning wasn't any different. So you you might produce the same learning outcomes if you've got your slides and you don't ever have your face right. there. But a sense of presence, a sense of connection, a sense of caring, that can make a difference. And I, again, I don't think we have enough research evidence to just say that emphatically, but I certainly have found that to be anecdotally yes. true in my own teaching. And then also just watching other people. I see people put walls up in online classes. I also see them do it standing behind podiums and yes. sticking to the script perfectly and not um, leaving enough room for the unexpected in their teaching. There is research that shows that students definitely engage more when they can see their instructor's face and hear the voice. And at least hearing the voice is most important because we use so much vocal intonation and emphasis. But when you are willing to capture your face as well, it does impact student engagement. And as Jose Bowen likes to say, engagement precedes learning. 
you, if you want to learn, I mean, you have to want to be there in order to learn. Mm -hmm. One of the things I ask faculty who are new to perhaps screencasting or recording a mini lecture video, I ask faculty how comfortable they were the very first time they stepped into a classroom to teach in person. Most of the time, they remember that there was a learning curve there and a sense of discomfort. And I, I just coach them that this is very similar. With, with more practice, you'll get more comfortable. Um, recently, in my online class, I recorded a quick announcement video from my treadmill desk. And I was just walking along in my workout clothes and talking to my students because I had been grading while I was on that treadmill desk. With practice will come that comfort level. But I know what you're saying in terms of it's just, again, a new experience for faculty. They don't have the confidence yet, many of them. There's a couple of different ways I distinguish the types of videos, the ones that are just announcements. I try to just do those in a single take and don't, I'll record the same thing as I did the last time, but I, I have this sense that I'll just, it's different. It's a different day. So we're looking into the next week of class and I'm going to re-record those weekly announcements and to the way in which we can be on treadmill desks. Or <laughs> I saw, I wish I, oh, I wish I had done a better job of bookmarking this because someone had done a intro to her class, which was a little bit more produced than what you and I are talking about, Flower, but she, she was in a it was like one of those car dashboard camera things. Yes. And oh, I wish I could remember what she did. It was so silly. And then I was just talking with Michelle Pekansky Brock, and she was saying someone had done a video where they they filmed it where they look like they're looking at each other. They're, oh. you know, the Brady Bunch sort of side by side thing. And I thought, <laughs> oh, and you know, those do take longer. And you do want to spend a little bit more time on them so that they maximize every minute of time. So you, I mean, those, those take some planning and some effort to really do those right. But those means of just connection, walking on your treadmill, treadmill desk can't be beat, I, I don't think. <laughs> well, and to your point of re-recording content that you've delivered several different times, it is the case that these students are new to you. Yes. And they are going to be perhaps working on different challenges or facing different questions or the group dynamic is different. And so absolutely record that quick in the moment opportunity to explain things in a way that makes the most sense for this group of students. It's well worth the time. Now, I would also argue, I agree, those highly or more highly produced videos can be really fun and effective, but I encourage my faculty to go ahead and do the one-take shot for those casual announcements, or sometimes I'll even do a two to three minute mini, mini micro lecture. And I, I leave the times in the video when I trip over my tongue. And yes. sometimes my hair is out of place and occasionally my children pop up behind me in the video and then I say, go away. And I leave that and I share that with my students because it does make it so much more authentic. Yes. You know, again, in the classroom, it is not the case that we are always perfectly articulate in our speech. And sometimes we're having a bad hair day and <laughs> sometimes we're distracted by a plane flying by out the window, whatever it might be. So bring that into the online class too. That authenticity is so important. I sneezed once in the middle of a pen cast and they just thought it was the funniest thing. <laughs> and, it, and it brought, you know, it brought more of an opportunity to connect. And, and I guess the only thing I would say is that us saying that doesn't mean then that you apologize for it and spend the time there. Cause that, that's really in a, when you're in an online environment, we do need to be conscious of the time, how little time and, and just the attention span being so different when we're in front right. of a computer or some other type of screen. Many times our, our learners are in front of mobile devices. 
such that, yes, if we do the sneeze, yes, if our kids come in, yes, if these things, these are unexpected things and we'll bring the attention back. But then we don't want to say, oh, I'm so sorry that I just sneezed. Oh, I don't know why I did that. I should probably delete this. But then I guess that that's where we go. No, 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 no. You're wasting my time. The sneeze was good. Stop with the sneeze. <laughs> go on to your next point. That's a great point, Bonnie. And one of the things I, in fact, I don't think I've ever commented in that way. But what I do is I pull a funny face right into the webcam. Mm-hmm. I just make a, a funny expression <laughs> like, oops, and I just keep talking. I wish I had, this is where I wish we were on video so we could show you your funny <laughs> face. I, I, I love that. One of the things I know is so important to you in your work and in your teaching and coaching a faculty to be better at this has to do with the idea of empathy. How do we draw our need to have empathy for our students and do that better in an online environment? Well, I began really focusing on this topic through an experience that I had in the AQ course that you mentioned AQ at the beginning of this conversation. They have an online course experience for faculty. And we, as a, as a faculty cohort, we experienced that last year and we're continuing. I facilitated it, but I also took the course as a learner. And I was stunned by what we learned by being online students. I was going to say online students again, but for many of the faculty, that was their first experience being an online learner. And we were in a course experience. It's the equivalent of a three-credit hour graduate course as endorsed by the American Council on Education. It's rigorous. There are deadlines. And my faculty and I experienced so many aha moments when we ourselves felt at a loss. We didn't know how to do something. A family member became unexpectedly ill and we missed a deadline and we felt like throwing in the towel because clearly we must be done. So that kind of, a, of an online learning experience is really impactful to help us remember what it's like. One of my current faculty in my cohort submitted an assignment and somehow the PDF came through blank. Her answers were not in it. And she literally, it was the first assignment that was due mm. and she thought that she was done. She thought I messed this up and there's no going back. I got to this. I, it's over. And I, I had this conversation with her like, well, first of all, no, it's not over. <laughs> that was a technical, technical glitch. But then I said, but this is what we do to our students. They, you know, we, we set expectations and standards and, and those are important, but finding ways of building some flexibility so that our students are not defeated when the first little unexpected thing goes wrong finding ways to build in some wiggle room to remember. That's one of the things that my faculty really learned and and I did is juggling a full-time job, family obligations, and taking this online professional development course. Hello, that's what our students are doing. So remembering how difficult it is to compete or learning for the first time to balance those competing demands, really very impactful and, and led me to think quite a bit about how we develop empathy for our online learners, especially. There are so many challenges associated with online classes. And in the book, I do spend some time encouraging readers to put themselves in their online students' shoes and imagine the course experience from the online student perspective. Um, I think it can be a really interesting way to reframe our thinking and our approach. One of the things that I really admire in this space have shared about before is to be sure that whatever expectations we're setting map to whatever context someone will be exhibiting these skills and in the future. As an example, 
If you're going to have a strict policy around due dates, then that should map to the profession or the context in which you're going to be preparing them for. So in the business world, if you don't get the proposal or the RFP back to the people in time, then you're not going to get the sale or you're not going to get to grow your business or, or what have you. And so I do, I am someone who I like to, I like to set a culture that says we start things on time. We, we fulfill our commitments, but I can't, I cannot tell you how my teaching has changed in two really important ways. One is just the empathy because these things do happen. So building in some kind of flexibility, I don't personally like to build into every assignment. Some people do the it drops a grade, you know, one day or whatever. That just, that has not really aligned well with my own teaching philosophy, but having some kind of wiggle room. And I know you like to have, uh, you know, a couple times during the term or the semester where students can submit something later or or redo an assignment and, and building that kind of structure in. But the second reason why I found it transformative is it's just so much easier. I don't have to, I just don't have to navigate and figure out if that really is worthy of, you know, trying to gauge the, what's being described in an email or an in-person office of whether it's quote unquote worthy of the extension or whatever. I mean, what I'm looking for over the term or the semester is just the trends. One mistake should not, you know, have a huge, and you know, you were talking about your colleague the first time she submits something, that's the first time they're doing it, then we, when we certainly should have flexibility to give them that confidence to pursue through the course. That's right. And my favorite approach, and again, it's so important, as you mentioned, to find one that aligns with your teaching philosophy. I love the OOPS token which is the concept I first learned about in Linda Nilsson's book on specifications grading. And I incorporate that. And that is just a, a get out of jail free card. I don't necessarily need to know all the gory details of what's happening. And uh, that sounded somewhat insensitive. I didn't mean it that way. But essentially, if you need a little extra time on one assignment, use your token. It's fine. Yep. Um, and then then we don't have to worry about verifying the circumstances that caused the student's to need a little more time. It didn't um, sound insensitive to me at all. It sounded really realistic because we should not expect that our students should feel like they have to tell us their entire life stories. <laughs> Some of these things are incredibly private that our students are going through. And even when they're not, I just prefer lowering the risk and the temptation of wanting to spin the story a little bit, you know, more grand so that it can be justified. You know, I just don't even, so it didn't sound insensitive. I thought, no, that's very realistic. And it's not elevating yourself to be, you know, judge and and jury in in these kinds of instances. It, It just sounded realistic and ultimately empathetic. Yet still, I think that probably turning things in on time most of the time is important to you as well, based on what you said. Absolutely. And and I do hear faculty push back on giving extensions or, or those kinds of things. That's not the real world. But, you know, our students aren't necessarily in their professional careers quite yet, and they are still learning. So how do we scaffold that learning and allow some opportunities to primarily meet the expectations and yet still understanding that they are still learning? How do we build in those support structures? Yeah. And, it, and to me, there are lots of things in the real world that if it doesn't get enough time, there are either no consequences or low consequences. It's more just the overall trend in one's life. I'm thinking about credit scores as a, as one example. You know, the it's not great if you're late on a credit card payment, 
But being late on one credit card payment doesn't mean you have, you know, go from 720 down to zero or something. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, proportional, I think, is probably a, a, a thing. And, and looking at trends and overall success. That's an excellent analogy. I, I've just found, and again, building in ways of allowing a little flexibility as needed. I've never had a student take advantage of that. And it relieves pressure from my life in terms of the amount of time. As you know, when a student has to explain what it is that happened, or it just saves me time. And again, very practically speaking, um, I feel like we can all use a little wiggle room in our lives. And my job is to support my students in their learning, not to tell them that if they're willing to do the work, I won't take it. Before we go on to the recommendation segment, I wonder if you would reflect on just this idea of that I'm good at doing something in my teaching in person. And how can I find ways to then draw from those strengths and move them into an online environment? Right. I think this is an area for learning for many faculty, especially those who love teaching, which I'm guessing that's your audience. Mm -hmm, (laughs) We've taught in person for so long and we're good at it and we enjoy it. And what we haven't learned how to do is to translate those practices and bring them into the online classroom. I was talking with a friend and a colleague last month. He's been teaching online for over 10 years, one of the people who got me started And he told me that what he loves about teaching in person is the opportunity to joke around with his students and interact and be himself and let his personality show. And and he said, I never thought of bringing my personality into my online class. Hmm. There, I am stiff. I am formal. I am distant. I am strict. I, I don't show my personality. And so it was an aha moment for him who's been teaching for well over 10 years. Again, I'm going to make the argument that he had never seen an example of somebody who's bringing more of a a human tone, even in terms of when we write assignment instructions or announcements, can we write them in a human voice and in our own voice and and not in that sort of distant, formal academies? We do a lot of things well in person. We do interact with our students. We support them. We make eye contact. We smile when we're teaching in person. We can, with thought and effort, we can figure out how to do those things in the online classroom as well. I enjoy so much you talking about the smiling. And I was thinking about somewhere in an online context, they asked people to respond in all GIFs. So for people (laughs) who may not be familiar, a GIF is the little animated thing that you see it's either a movie clip or a cartoon something but it doesn't have any sound in it at all and you see it a lot in social media or people will text it that's in a lot of the messaging platforms but to have you know a discussion forum that's all just gifts in response to something you know that's kind of meeting people in an environment that possibly if they're taking an online class, not in every case, but that they might, you know, speak in those languages, and they might be more comfortable reacting to a video instead of some big long discussion. And it's just, you know, a different way to get people to react that is more akin to how they respond in online environments and other contexts. I'm not saying we do this for everything, but to the little element of surprise, it did make me smile when I saw someone doing it. And you can see that the people watch the video and they're having a response to what they just watched. It's a, a fun, creative way. But I think more so what I'd love to emphasize too is just to get to connect with people like you, Flower, truly. It's such a honor for me, but it's also just ignites my curiosity and it ignites my imagination for what's possible and how we can do this better with our students. It's so much fun. 
Well, thank you, Bonnie. You know, you make a really, I love that example of replying with gifts. New forms of communication are absolutely developing in our online and digital interactions, texting, messaging, social media. We're using emojis, gifts, memes. We can communicate very effectively and we can enter into deep engagement with other people online. We just need to bring some of those practices into the classroom. It doesn't have to be stiff and formal all the time. There are new ways of communicating. We need to think carefully about whether and how we bring some of those things into our online teaching practice. This is the point in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And mine is in the productivity space. And it's an app that I started using called Scanner Pro. And if Scanner Pro isn't available on whatever OS that you use for your phone. It's it's more about just having a good scanner app for your phone. I do have a piece of hardware that allows me to scan if it's a large stack of paper, but if it's something small, they're getting so good these days. And you just lay out, if it's a stack of even five pages, lay them out on a contrasting surface and you essentially take a picture, but it, it automatically recognizes where the edge of that paper is and it sharpens the text. It's amazing. I mean, sometimes I find that the scan quality is even higher than the quality of the piece of paper sitting on my desk. And I can flip over to the next page and leave the app running. It's running the entire time. And each time it's finding the edges of that paper, it's scanning, it's scanning. And then what I like about Scanner Pro, which it's now replaced the other app that I had been using, is it has little workflows built into it. So for me, when I travel now, I can automatically have that receipt go to the place that it needs to go and have any tags associated with it to make it easier when I come back and need to do an expense report. If it's some sort of documentation related to the department, then it can make sure and go in the right folder in whatever cloud services I want it to go. So Scanner Pro is just saving me some time. And one of the things I'm looking forward to is just getting to spend a little bit more time in the app because I think there's even things that can do I haven't discovered yet. But it was very easy to get started. And that's always important to me as well. I got started right away, didn't have confusion, but then, oh, they have these workflows. I could try this too. And it's just a great little app. So that's what I have to recommend today. And Flower, I'm going to pass it over to you for your recommendations. Thank you. I would like to share a book that has been very impactful for me in recent months. The title of the book is Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less by Alex Sujong Kim Pang. And it has been transformative in my thinking. I confess to being something of a workaholic. I know those of us who are passionate about what we do, we, we find it hard to stop doing the work. And our culture seems to honor long work hours. This book makes a compelling argument for why that isn't effective and how when you're doing creative work, which I would argue all teachers and researchers are engaged in, that you have those insights so much more profoundly when you are deliberate in your ways of carving out time for rest. The book also lays out some extremely practical tips for how to make the most of your rest time and what kinds of activities you should be engaged in. He has a whole chapter on deep play, which I love the the concept. Now, implementing this, I'm going to think is going to be a little bit of a challenge, but it started to influence my thinking. And his big point is, Don't just try to let rest happen where it does between the cracks, but instead be intentional to schedule those opportunities to allow your brain to take a break. Oh, it sounds like a wonderful book and one that I definitely would 
get a lot out of, I imagine. And I love the, I'm looking at it right now online and I'm seeing the cover, at least the version that I'm looking at has flip-flops. I just love that. It's very clever. I feel rested already just looking at the (laughs) flip-flops. Yeah, exactly. Mine, the cover of the one that I've been reading has like a deck chair or a lounge chair. Mm, That's even uh, better. That's a good one. (laughs) I might have to go see if I can find the cover you're referring to. It's on, yeah, well, basically the the book has given me permission to allow myself to take those breaks. Oh, I love it. Well, Flower, thank you so much for coming on Teaching in Higher Ed, for sharing this recommendation and all this great advice for us to take the principles from small teaching, but bring them online. And I can't wait to read your book. We're recording this before I could get my hands on one, but you've made me even more so. You had me at the title, but now you have me even more so. Really looking forward to seeing the evidence of all of your work on this. So thank you so much for the work on the book and your collaboration with James Lang. And thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you, Bonnie. It's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for my partnership with AQ that brings me guests that are as phenomenal as Flower Darby. Thank you to AQ and thanks to Flower for spending your time today on Teaching in Higher Ed. Those of you who have been listening for a while know that I ask every once in a while for you to think about giving a review on whatever service it is that you use to listen to the show on. That just helps spread the word about the show. But another way you can help spread the word about the show is just to think about a memorable episode and pass it on to some colleagues and let them know that you benefited from it and see if they'd like to take a listen too. We are here on episode number 240. 241 is coming up. Thanks so much for listening and being a part of this community. And I'll see you next time.